You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Today we will continue to look at the 13 keys to the Emmanuel prophecy, and we already looked previously at the first three points. So today we will go through the next five points, points four through eight. Point number four, the young maiden was an unidentified woman, likely one who lived in the royal household, who had a son and named him Emmanuel. Based on the language used in Isaiah 7.14 and what is actually said versus what is not said, it is hard to argue against the merits of this latter option, option four, that Isaiah 7.14 refers to an unidentified young woman and her son Emmanuel. This plain sense reading of Isaiah 7.14 is the best option because as noted earlier, Isaiah 7.14 is part of a historical narrative that uses common everyday language for conception, childbirth, and naming, just like dozens of other passages in the Hebrew Bible. When this is understood, it would make little sense to read the dozens of other passages in the Old Testament that use identical language literally while simultaneously reading Isaiah 7.14 symbolically, which would be the inconsistent approach required to accept that the young maiden and Emmanuel represent Ahaz's wife and Hezekiah, or Isaiah's wife and Meher Shalal Hashbaz, or women and their children in a collective sense, or even the Virgin Mary and her son Jesus. Based on the details we are given, there is no good reason to reject the idea that Isaiah 7.14 refers to a young maiden known to Isaiah and Ahaz who lived in the 700s BC and actually named her firstborn son Emmanuel. This is what the text says. Nothing more and nothing less, so we should accept it at face value. Thus, on that note, Old Testament scholar Gerard von Groningen also speculates that the unidentified young maiden was probably part of the royal family of Ahaz because the family, or the house of David, is the central subject under discussion in Isaiah 7. Furthermore, to add to von Groningen's insights here, the young maiden and her son would have to have been known and easily recognized by Ahaz because the prophecy was originally addressed specifically to him and his household, Isaiah 7.13. It seems likely, therefore, that a faithful young woman in the inner circle of Ahaz conceived during Judah's time of distress and then named her son Emmanuel as an expression of her faith in God. Even as the hearts of her countrymen were shaking as the trees of the forest shake with the wind— Isaiah 7 verse 2, she declared through her son that God would still be with Judah and deliver his people. Her actions in turn also served as a rebuke to those of Ahaz and the royal household because they too should have been trusting in God's promise to preserve the Davidic throne, but were instead living in fear and relying on their own political machinations to win the day. Nevertheless, and even in spite of their rebellion, God did not leave his people without a sign of his mercy. Against the backdrop of a chaotic war, the sign child Emmanuel was born, and Judah was reassured that their nation would live on and not be completely destroyed by the northern alliance of Israel and Aram. Point number six, or key number six. The Hebrew word sign 
does not require a supernatural miracle. The high likelihood that Emmanuel was a child born through natural means in 734 BC also raises important questions about why his birth is called a sign in Isaiah 7:14. Proponents of the Messianic prophecy view often argue that the Hebrew word sign or ot indicates that this had to be a miraculous birth of some kind, which then reinforces their position that the virgin birth of Christ is referenced here. In point of fact, however, there are two primary reasons why the Hebrew word sign, ot, does not have to be taken as indicative of a miraculous rather than natural birth. First, this word has a wide range of meaning in the Hebrew Bible. It can indicate something miraculous, but it does not always imply what we would consider today a supernatural miracle. Instead, this word could also designate something in the natural realm of everyday experience that somehow bears witness to the promises and purposes of God. For example, Isaiah himself uses the same word, ot, or sign, in Isaiah 8 to refer to his own children. That's Isaiah 8:18. He also uses this word in Isaiah 19 to refer to a sacrificial altar that will be built in Egypt during the Messianic age, Isaiah 19, 19 through 20. And one chapter later, Isaiah says that when he walked around naked and barefoot for three years, he was functioning as a sign from God to Egypt and Cush that the Assyrians would soon take them into captivity, barefooted with their buttocks uncovered, Isaiah 20, verses 1 through 6. As a matter of fact, if we leave the two occurrences of sign in Isaiah 7 off to the side and look only at the other places where this word is used in the book of Isaiah, we discover that it is used nine other times, and at least seven of these occurrences refer to natural events, whereas only one definitely refers to a miracle in the time of Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, 8-9. The appearance of the word sign, ot, in Isaiah 7:11 and 7:14, therefore, does not require a supernatural birth, and in reality, the way in which Isaiah most commonly uses this word in his prophetic treatise leads us away from the supernatural and more towards the natural. As with Alma, however, the word sign alone does not necessarily prove one thing or another. As a result, we will have to look closer at context clues to determine the nature of the sign referred to in Isaiah 7, which brings us to the second and most important point regarding the sign in the days of Ahaz. Point seven, the sign was that Emmanuel would eat curds and honey at an early age, which signified the defeat of the northern threat, i.e. Israel and Aram. Isaiah 7, 15 to 16 tells us that the sign of verse 14 did not have so much to do with the birth of the child as it did with his diet at a particular stage of life. Thus, we read in this passage, he, that is the child Emmanuel, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In the ancient world, curds or yogurt and honey were not only foods that symbolized abundance and prosperity. Rather, they also symbolized devastation after a military defeat. Because when an ancient army invaded a nation, they would often destroy the farmland and or requisition the crops and animals to the point that regular agricultural products, such as meat, grains, fruits, and vegetables, were no longer available or easy to produce. This scenario in turn created a situation in which milk products and honey would often be the only foods available, sometimes in abundance, 
because after the land was devastated, more wildflowers would grow, producing more honey, and more land would become available for grazing sheep and milk-producing cattle. Once we understand this relationship between curds and honey and a military invasion, it is easier to see that when Isaiah says of Emmanuel in verse 15 that he will eat curds and honey by the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, he is indicating that this would be a positive sign for Judah because it would signify the defeat of Judah's northern enemies, Israel and Aram, which is precisely why verse 16 also adds the explanation for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In other words, even though curds and honey was a diet that represented hardship after a military invasion, in the context of Isaiah 7, 15-16, these were foods that were about to become more readily available in Judah because their northern enemies were about to be invaded and conquered by the Assyrians, which would have been a good thing for those living in Jerusalem, including Ahaz and the house of David. So the curds and honey diet, it's kind of like what you could call a double entendre. It kind of has a double meaning. It represents both devastation and blessing, devastation for Judah's enemies, but by default, blessing for Judah. And scholars have often made the interpretation of the curds and honey language in Isaiah 7.15 more complicated than it needs to be, because they cannot decide if the curds and honey signify abundance, blessing, judgment, some combination of all three, or maybe even a particular reference to baby food. This confusion is easy to bypass if we read the text at face value and see that verse 16 presents the diet of curds and honey as a direct result of the forsaking of the land of Israel and Aram. Notice that the word land is used there, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So their land is forsaken, thus you get the the abundance of curds and honey produced because of land conditions, and thus that food is available in Judah for Emmanuel to consume, which is a sign a sign of blessing for Ahaz and the Davidic household. This means that Emmanuel would eat curds and honey at an early age because Judah's northern enemies would soon be vanquished. And that would be the sign of verse 14 that proved God was still with his people. Furthermore, although Isaiah 7, 17 to 25 contains a separate prophecy about the future invasion of Judah by the Assyrians many decades later, which is distinct from the Emmanuel prophecy in verses 14 to 16, it too references curds and honey as a diet that was available after a military invasion. You can cross-reference Isaiah 7.22. And thus, there should be no doubt that curds and honey throughout the seventh chapter of Isaiah refers to the food that was produced more abundantly in times of warfare, due in large part to land conditions, but also due to the fact that many people would only be able to keep one or two dairy animals alive in times of warfare rather than large numbers of livestock for meat. You can cross-reference Isaiah 7.18-25. In any case, we know from history that in 733 BC, no more than a year after the Emmanuel prophecy was given, the Assyrians began their military invasion of northern Israel and Aram. Subsequently, though the military campaigns and deportations continued for many decades thereafter, By 732 BC, Israel and Aram were on the verge of total defeat and their land was completely devastated in the wake of the Assyrian conquest, just as Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 7.16. Moreover, because the kingdoms of Israel, Aram, and Judah were in such close proximity to one another, 
the defeat of Israel and Aram by the Assyrians would have also made extra curds and honey more readily available throughout the entire region. So in the markets and along the trade routes, which would have in turn found their way into Judah and into the home of the young maiden and Emmanuel himself. Thus, the promised sign of Isaiah 7.14 was fulfilled when the young child Emmanuel, no more than two or three years old, maybe four at the most, i.e. the age when he started to understand good and evil according to verse 15, began to consume the diet of curds and honey that signified the defeat of Judah's northern enemies at the hands of the Assyrians. God was indeed with his people, Emmanuel, and the complete prophecy found in Isaiah 7:14-16 proves that this was a sign that could only have been relevant and fulfilled in the 8th century BC, particularly against the backdrop of the wars taking place between Judah, Israel, Aram, and Assyria at this time. Point 8. And along with Alma, this is probably the most important point to understand uh, if we want to grasp why the Messianic prophecy interpretation of Isaiah 7 is off base. So point 8. Isaiah 7, 14 to 16 cannot be split up into two separate prophecies. In response to the idea that Isaiah 7, 14 to 16 is one unified prophecy about Emmanuel eating a diet of curds and honey in the 700s BC, advocates of the Messianic prophecy view will argue that these verses actually contain two separate prophecies, one in verses 14 to 15 and another in verse 16. The reason they are forced to make this move is because they recognize that the prophecy had to have some near-term fulfillment in the 700s BC. Otherwise, it could not contain a positive sign for Ahaz in the historical context. However, because proponents of the Messianic prophecy view are not willing to give up the idea that Isaiah 7.14 contains a direct prediction of the virgin birth of Jesus, they split the difference and say there is a long-term prophecy in verses 14 to 15 about the Messiah and a short-term prophecy in verse 16 about another child who lived in the 700s BC. So what they end up with is the idea that these verses in 14 to 15 are about Jesus. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Then on the other hand, proponents of the Messianic prophecy view, they argue that the following words at the end of the text were about another child who lived in Isaiah's day. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So just main point to understand is they split off verse 16 as a separate prophecy from verses 14 to 15, which as we'll see, makes no sense. And in most cases, those in the Messianic prophecy camp argue that the boy, in their view, in verse 16, who is allegedly distinct from Emmanuel in verses 14 to 15, was Isaiah's son, Sha'er Jashub, who we know from Isaiah 7.3 was with Isaiah when he delivered the prophecy to Ahaz in the house of David. In other words, it is common to hear that the reason Isaiah took his son, Sha'er Jashub, with him when he met Ahaz was because he, Sha'er Jashub, was to be the sign child of the near-term prophecy in verse 16 that is given after the long-range messianic prophecy 
in verses 14 to 15. So in the words of Michael Rydelnik, so who is the child in 716? In light of Isaiah being directed to bring his own son to the confrontation with the king at the conduit of the upper pool, cross-reference 7.3, it makes the most sense to identify the lad of verse 16 as She'er Jashub. Otherwise, there would be no purpose for God directing Isaiah to bring the boy. Thus, having promised the virgin birth of the Messiah, 7.13-15, the prophet then points to the very small boy that he has brought along and says, But before this lad using the article with a demonstrative force, knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In this way, She'er Jashub functioned as a sign to the king. So let me offer a critique of this two prophecies theory and interpretation of Isaiah 7, 14 to 16. For a long time, I accepted the idea that there are two separate prophecies in Isaiah 7, 14 to 16, about two different children, in large part because I did not want to let go of the idea that Isaiah 7.14 is a direct prophecy about the virgin birth. I even wrote a paper in my Old Testament 2 class in seminary defending this view, so I'm, I'm very well acquainted with the ins and outs of this position. But over the years, as I continued to study this passage, looking more closely at both the Hebrew text and its historical context, it has become clear to me that verses 14 to 16 contain one near-term historical prophecy, not a long-range messianic prophecy in verses 14 to 15 and a near-term historical prophecy in verse 16. To understand why we can be confident that there is only one historical prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14 to 16, as well as only one sign child in this text, Emmanuel, we need to first look at the relationship between the terms Emmanuel and he and the boy in verses 14 to 16. Hebrew, like English, follows a grammatical rule that we can call the law of the antecedent. And this is just a fancy way of saying that if we see a subject followed by a personal pronoun or a personal pronoun followed by a subject, then the two should be equated unless a new subject is clearly introduced. So imagine if your friend says to you, Did you ask your brother if he can pick us up from the airport? To which you reply, yes, he told me he can't do it. That guy is a total flake. The brother is obviously the same person as the he, the personal pronoun that follows, and the he also designates the guy in the last line. This is the way basic speech and communication works, both in English and in Hebrew. There is an assumption that antecedent pronouns and subjects are the same, because if this were not the case, then confusion would abound and normal speech would become impossible without endless qualifications and time-consuming explanations. Similarly, in the same way that we would never assume that the guy in the above example is someone distinct from the brother mentioned in the first line, we should not assume that the boy in Isaiah 7.16 is someone distinct from Emmanuel in 7.14. The most natural reading of the text maintains that the son and Emmanuel of verse 14 are the same as the he in verse 15, and also that the he of verse 15 is the same person as the boy in verse 16. Again, this is how antecedent subject pronoun or pronoun subject relationships work. And there is no evidence that Isaiah has transitioned to speak of a new subject and a new prophecy after verse 15. 
And on that point, what is even more strange is that proponents of the Messianic prophecy view abide by these subject antecedent rules when interpreting verses 14 to 15, arguing that the Son, Emmanuel, and the He are the same person, the Messiah. But then when they get to verse 16, they violate these very same rules that govern their interpretation of the previous verses, verses 14 to 15, and therefore introduce a new subject, She'er Jashub, who is not even mentioned in the immediate context. I know they'll argue otherwise. They'll say he's mentioned earlier, but he's mentioned way earlier. He's not mentioned in the the one prophecy, the flow of thought that you see there. So again, based on how these basic grammatical rules work, there's no reason to introduce a new subject. And just as bad, proponents of the Messianic prophecy view do not produce any grammatical evidence from other use cases in the Hebrew Bible that prove that the normative law of the antecedent can be broken in this way. This, consequently, means that their entire theory is based on a violation of some of the most basic rules of Hebrew grammar and syntax, rules that are entirely consistent throughout the Old Testament. That She'er Jashub was with Isaiah when the prophecy was given is an interesting detail, and we can only speculate as to why this was the case. But regardless of the reason, She'er Jashub is never specified in the text as the subject of the prophecy given in verses 14 to 16, or 16 in particular. And as a result, we should not read him into the scenario here to suit a preferred interpretation, especially when such a maneuver requires such a dubious move in regards to the basic rules that govern Hebrew grammar and syntax. Furthermore, as kind of a side note, we are never even told how old She'er Jashub was when Isaiah met Ahaz, and it is at least somewhat likely that he was already past the age of two or three when the encounter took place, in which case he couldn't be the boy of Isaiah 7.16, because the deliverance of verse 16 was to take place before the boy knew enough to refuse good and evil, i.e. before the boy reached roughly two, three, or four years old. In other words, if we wanted to ignore the grammatical problems with reading She'er Jashub as the boy of verse 16, the only way She'er Jashub could in fact be this boy is if he was a newborn infant when the prophecy was given, which one, is never stated in the text, and two, doesn't seem to fit the description of him going with Isaiah when he, Isaiah, met Ahaz. On the other hand, the idea that Emmanuel is the boy of verse 16 makes perfect sense because we know Emmanuel would indeed be an infant in the very near future, thus giving the prophesied events of verse 16 enough time to transpire before he, Emmanuel, would know enough to refuse evil and choose good. All that to say, linking Emmanuel to verse 16 makes sense grammatically and contextually, and this approach also requires no arbitrary speculation on the part of the interpreter, whereas the idea that She'er Jashub is the boy in verse 16 makes no sense grammatically or contextually and requires pure speculation in regards to She'er Jashub's age. When all of this is considered, the argument that She'er Jashub is the boy of verse 16 fails the test of the evidence at hand. And we should always remember when interpreting the Bible that the text is what we have, not an alleged event behind the text that is never explicitly mentioned. In this case, the alleged event that's not mentioned would be Isaiah pointing to She'er Jashub when he says the words recorded in verse uh, 16, as, uh, as Rydelnik mentions, but the text never tells us that. The text never says Isaiah points to She'er Jashub there. So we should interpret the text based on the common 
and uh, acceptable rules of Hebrew grammar and syntax. And if we do that, then we see that Emmanuel is the boy of verse 16. And once you understand how all of this works together, you can see that there's no possibility that there is a long-range messianic prophecy in verses 14 to 15 and a near-term historical prophecy in verse 16. The entire prophecy is a unit that speaks of one child, not two. And for this reason, none of the prophecy can be separated from a near-term historical fulfillment. Now, there's also another grammatical reason that we can be confident that verses 14 to 16 are all about the same child. And I actually think this is the the strongest point to emphasize here, even though I think the pronoun subject antecedent rules are important and the whole issue about Sha'er Jashub probably being too old to be the boy of verse 16, I think this next point is even more important in terms of a grammatical and syntactical argument for taking this as a unified prophecy. So notice that verse 16 opens with causal language causal language, particularly the word for or because, which is the Hebrew word ki. It says, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This word ki at the beginning of a sentence denotes what any introductory Hebrew grammar would call a causal clause, meaning the language in the causal clause explains what was mentioned in the preceding sentence. Once this is understood, there is no way to separate verse 16 from verse 15 because the two verses are organically connected in the sense that verse 16 tells us the cause of the effect referred to in verse 15. Verse 15 states that Emmanuel will eat curds and honey by the time he is a toddler. That's the effect or the outcome. Then verse 16 explains why, the cause of the effect because the land of Israel and Aram will be forsaken. According to the rules of Hebrew grammar and syntax, and in this case the rules that govern causal clauses, there is no justifiable reason to break off verse 16 from verse 15. And just like we saw when we discussed subject and pronoun relationships earlier, proponents of the Messianic prophecy view do not present any evidence from any other use cases in the Hebrew Bible that prove Their interpretation is grammatically viable on this point. So what I'm saying is they never produce any other examples that demonstrate when and why a causal clause can be severed from the preceding sentence that it would typically explain, which they can very reasonably be expected to do, or which I'm saying we should expect them or they should be required to do this when arguing for such a novel interpretation. So all I'm saying is if you're going to cut off verse 16 from verses 14 to 15, in, in such a way that it violates the normal rules of Hebrew grammar and syntax, show me some evidence elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible that justifies that approach on grammatical and exegetical grounds. And they, they never do this. They simply take it as kind of an assumption that this can be the case because it suits their interpretation, but they never actually prove it based on how the Hebrew language works. Therefore, in effect... The Messianic prophecy view, again, must rely on nothing more than special pleading to remain viable, meaning it relies on extreme exceptions to the basic rules of Hebrew grammar and syntax, exceptions that are simply not necessary and which make no sense, especially when a better historical reading of verses 14 to 16 is readily apparent. 
In the words of Oswald, it is not necessary to separate verse 16 from verse 15. In fact, the opening key for or because can, and I would say should, be taken as causal, indicating why the child will eat curds and honey, because Judah will be delivered from her neighbor's threat. To this, Hamilton adds, the statement in 716 roots the sign of Emmanuel firmly in the historical context with which the chapter is dealing. Now, why was Emmanuel eating the food of oppression a good thing? We kind of need to revisit this because in response to the idea that verses 14, or I'm sorry, 15 to 16 exhibit a causal relationship, uh, some in the Messianic prophecy camp, such as Rydelnik, for example, will respond by saying, the causal nuance makes no sense if the curds and honey represent the food of oppression, as it plainly does in the next paragraph. How would Judah's deliverance explain why the child would eat curds and honey, the food of oppression? So what Rydelnik is saying is that curds and honey is associated with oppression, so that wouldn't be a good sign for Judah. And so that's why he is neglecting and not accepting the causal and uh, the causal reading of the language there, that verse 16 is simply explaining verse 15, which means it's all one unified prophecy. So this again is a fair question, but as noted earlier, even though curds and honey did represent oppression, they represented the food of oppression that would become available in Judah because Judah's enemies to the north were about to be defeated. So there's no inconsistency here when Isaiah notes that Emmanuel eating this diet by the age of two or three would be a positive sign for his people. It's a positive sign for Judah, not necessarily a positive sign for Israel and Aram that are going to produce the curds and honey initially in 734-733 BC. Israel is not a large country, and the heart of Aram, which was the city of Damascus, was less than 200 miles away from Jerusalem, and the heart of the Israelite kingdom, Samaria, was even closer. So with this geography in mind, we can safely assume that more curds and honey would have been available in the markets in Judah as a result of the Assyrians' invasion of Israel and Aram. Maybe oppressed people in the north would have been seeking to acquire other essential items from those in the south in Judah and would have consequently traded basic foodstuffs with them. Or because we know that by the time the prophecy in Isaiah 7 was given, the Judeans were already in an alliance with the Assyrians. You can read about that in 1 Kings uh, 16. It is possible that Assyrian traders from the north brought more curds and honey into Judah after their initial invasion of Israel and Aram. But whatever the exact means of distribution here, the implication of and the assumption behind Isaiah 7, 15 to 16 is that more curds and honey would be available in Judah as a result of the Assyrian conquest of Israel and Aram, which it would in turn affect the diet of Emmanuel, which would in turn also function as a sign of God's faithfulness to Judah against her enemies. And thus, the claim that Emmanuel eating curds and honey could only signify oppression and not blessing can be easily answered once we understand how tradable goods would inevitably move around in such a small area, especially in times of war. In a twist of irony, Emmanuel is pictured in Isaiah 7, 15-16 as eating the food that would normally symbolize oppression, but in this particular case, 
It is the food that symbolizes not the oppression of his people, but instead the reality that his enemies have been vanquished. A powerful sign indeed of God's covenant fidelity to the house of David and blessing upon the people of Judah. So third and finally, just on this two prophecies theory maintained by the messianic camp and why it's it's not tenable. Third and finally, the idea that there are two prophecies in Isaiah 7, 14 to 16 is weak because this view requires us to apply the diet of curds and honey mentioned in verse 15 to Jesus. So after all, if Emmanuel in verse 14 is no one else besides the Messiah, and verse 15 belongs to the Emmanuel prophecy, as everyone agrees it does, that means this verse would also indicate that Jesus himself was raised on a diet of curds and honey. So people in the Messianic prophecy camp, they apply not only verse 14, which they think is about the virgin birth, which it's not, but they think it is. They also apply verse 15 to Jesus and say, this is giving us a prediction about the the diet of Jesus as a small child. And the problem with this idea, of course, is that we are never told anywhere in the Gospels or in the New Testament that Jesus was raised on a diet of curds and honey. So Jesus was raised in a time of Roman occupation, and some have argued that this justifies the view that he was raised on the diet of oppression mentioned in 715. But in addition to the fact that the New Testament never mentions this diet in connection with the life of Jesus, it also needs to be stated that in Isaiah 7, curds and honey are not merely tied to occupation. More accurately, they are tied to an active, large-scale military invasion and conquest, the likes of which never took place when Jesus was alive. So just because Jesus was alive in a time of occupation doesn't mean he was alive in a time of military conquest, such as would produce a diet of curds and honey. The Romans conquered Israel nearly six decades before Jesus was born, around the year 66 BC. And after this, there was not another large-scale Roman military invasion of Israel until 66 AD during the first Jewish revolt, over 30 years after Jesus was crucified. So there's no evidence to support the idea that diets of curds and honey, due to a lack of regular farming and agricultural practices, were ubiquitous during Jesus' lifetime. And as a matter of fact, we know that standard farming was practiced in the time of Jesus. Jesus is frequently portrayed in the Gospels eating bread and drinking wine, two things that are only possible to do when grain fields and vineyards are being tended to. And additionally, Jesus attends weddings and feasts with tax collectors and sinners, two things that would not have been possible if everyone in the land was living on a subsistence diet of curds and honey. And all that to say, attempting to force Isaiah 7, uh, 15 to be a prophecy about Jesus and his diet rather than a historical prophecy that was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, it just doesn't make any sense historically. This view requires us to read things into the biography of Jesus that are never expressly stated in the New Testament, and it requires us to ignore the on-ground circumstances in Israel during Jesus' lifetime, specifically that Jesus did not live in Israel during a time of total agricultural desolation, but instead lived in a time when basic farming practices were common. To summarize then, there is no good reason, grammatical, historical, or otherwise, 
to break up Isaiah 7, 14 to 16 into two separate prophecies. This passage exhibits a basic flow of thought in that it introduces the child who was to be born, verse 14, describes his diet, verse 15, and then explains why this diet would be a positive sign for Judah, verse 16. Moreover, once the unified nature of these verses and their interrelationship to one another is understood, it becomes impossible to deny that as far as the original audience of Isaiah 7:14-16 was concerned, this prophecy functioned as a short-term promise about a child who would be born in Isaiah's day and then experience all of the events outlined in the text. The oracle did not, at the time it was given, function in any way as a long-range prediction about the Messiah's virgin birth and diet. Well, we've covered the first eight keys now, and I hope you will join me for the conclusion in our next episode where we will cover the remaining points in this series on the Emmanuel Prophecy. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 